0: But here we are, beautiful day. A few announcements before we get underway. Uh, Next uh, Sunday, April 2nd, uh, we will have a light lunch and dessert after the worship service. Uh, The intent is to get everybody on the same page regarding the Children's Church and introduce you to our new Children's Church coordinators. And there'll be a little movie going on for the children at the same time, so next Sunday right after worship service, meander down to the Fellowship Hall and we'll have a, a great time. Also other announcements, not too far down the road, uh, is Good Friday service, and that service, if you haven't figured out, is on a Friday, and it's also going to be at 6 o'clock in the evening, so Good Friday service. Uh, coming up very soon. So plan on that. And of course, Easter is on the horizon on Sunday, April 9th. And so we have a sequence of events here from Good Friday and Palm Sunday and also uh, Easter. So we'll have a, a great time of sharing. I should mention also that the library, the refurbished, renewed, new and exciting library is open for everyone to use. You may have noticed it if you come in the back entranceway. It's where the access way is also to the elevator. It's uh, adjacent to the Faith Cafe. So you can grab a cup of coffee, grab a book, sit down and read, uh, have a great time there. So check it out if you have a chance. But for those that are first-time visitors, I want you to be very much aware that I am not the pastor. However, uh, he is on vacation uh, in Florida. Uh, He's got a three-day pastoral conference followed by a time with the children at a place called Disney World and so I'm sure uh, he's having a great time being dragged around all the attractions by the girls and hopefully he'll be back next week unless they wear him out so uh, should be a, a fun time for their entire family so we come together today to worship our Heavenly Father and we look forward to celebrating the journey that Christ made that ultimately led to his crucifixion and resurrection, and so uh, we're starting and thinking about that special time of the year. But first, Edwin, what's our first song for today? God Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance. Blessed assurance. What a great blessing that is, uh, Edwin. Take it away.
1: We'll do. All right, church. Let's let's stand this morning. I want to read. Uh, our call to worship, it's on Psalm 145. Uh, it's a few verses. Um, the Word of God says, The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Praise God, right? The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to, to make known to the children of man, your mighty deeds, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words, and kind in all his works. Amen. Church, let's, uh, let's worship this morning. Amen.
2: Assurance and blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine! Is salvation, purchase us. All things their Creator bless and worship Him in humbleness.
1: you this morning, God, in song as we as we sang this morning, Lord, words that expressed our our hearts, Father. Coming from the work that you have done for us. First and foremost, Lord, the cross, redeeming us, Lord, through your blood. Father, you are worthy of our worship. God, may we understand when we sing these words to you, Father. May we know these truths and believe them. Lord, we're we're grateful for our time this morning and I I pray God you may continue to lead us. Lead us now, Lord, in, in prayer and in your word. May your word speak to us, Lord, may may be nourishing God to our bodies. May we be fed. May we respond as well, Lord. as we desire to honor you. So, Father, we pray you may lead us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, Church, you may be seated. At this time, we'll be dismissing our children to their uh, classrooms.
0: Well, before we enter into a time of prayer, I'd like to read from uh, the Scripture, from the book of Matthew. The scripture I've selected here also has a foretelling of Jesus' death and resurrection, which I think is appropriate to emphasize at this time of the year. But I have an ulterior motive in reading this particular scripture, and I think you'll figure that out soon enough. Matthew 16, verses 21 through the first part of verse 26. Matthew 16, 21 to 26. Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? But a thing he said to Peter that struck me was, you need to focus your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. So, as opposed to Peter's temporary lapse We need to set our mind on God's interests, as Jesus so candidly reminded Peter. And now us. let's pray. We come before you a high and holy God, a God characterized by many things, but preeminent on the list is uh, the characterization of being omniscient, a God who knows all things. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything we're going to do. Even before we verbalize them, you are a God who's omnipotent, a God who's all powerful, God of all creation, who hung the planets in the sky and created the earth and all that is in it. Lord, you are also omnipresent. You are everywhere at once, capable of being at all places at all times. Wherever our lives take us, you are there. There is no way that we can escape your presence, and we relish that thought. Lord, you are also a God of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of grace, and most of all, a a God of love. You are the epitome of love, but we love you since you loved us first. We boldly come before the throne of grace, for as scriptures remind us, we do not have a high priest who cannot empathize with our weaknesses, but we worship the one who has been tempted in all things, as we have been, yet without sin. So we draw near to God with confidence as we seek your mercy and grace. We ask for your divine intervention in the lives of those of our church family who are dealing with tough times. May your presence be a source of comfort and joy. We ask that you continue to hold our pastor and his family in your righteous right hand, that they have a return trip that is uneventful, but a trip as a family that was very eventful, and so we look forward to seeing them when they return. We ask that you continue to send folks our way who are looking for a church home, and that we, in turn, may extend a warm welcome to those who grace our doors We so desire to grow your church here in Portsmouth and be a lighthouse that draws people unto you. Lord, our nation is at a crossroads of political instability, moral confusion, and international and global posturing that has the potential to escalate into conflict. Lord, you are the King of Kings. And all governments are under your control, whether they know it or not. So, Lord, may we pray for godly leadership at every level of our nation. But we ask that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, you are the vine, and we are the branches. And we need to stay grafted into the vine. So we can bear fruit. For apart from you, we can do nothing. You are the personification of mercy and truth. Bless our time together this morning and every morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James.
3: All right, well, good morning. It was a joy to be welcomed back again um, and to prepare for this morning, so I'm grateful for that and for each of you that uh, sent a kind note and prayed this week um, as, uh, as I was preparing again. Um, so yeah, this morning we're going to be digging into First John, and Easter is just around the corner, a couple weeks away. And sometimes I think about like, how many books, shows, movies have been created to depict the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as I was growing up, the, we had a bookcase that was just filled with VHSs, and, and one of those was the 1965 film, The Greatest Story Ever Told, this thick, long movie that was two VHSs wide, and, and it made me think, like, what makes a good story? What... What makes a story compelling? What what grips you and brings you to go along the ride that the author intends? And stories like where someone is redeemed beyond all odds, or a family is uh, restored after being wrought by uh, an addiction from one of its members. These stories have sacrifice and, and characters uh, that show courage, people who give of themselves, and stories. These stories always have love. And if we receive the forgiveness of our sins. And we are made alive through him. It is that simple. We acknowledge our sins before God and repent of them, turning away from our sins and looking to Christ to walk in the light. In that moment, we're transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ because we have the forgiveness of sins. We're born of God. This is how fellowship with God is restored. Salvation through Jesus. This is the Apostle John's reminder To us, and the confident assurance we can have. And it's also the Apostle Paul's encouragement, as we read in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you don't, if today you don't know the Lord, you know in your heart, consider these things. We're told that we, each of us are image bearers of God and we have a conscience inside of us. We know what separates us. It is sin from God. Consider these things. Consider Christ. When we believe in him, he adopts us, or we can call him Abba, Father. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And can you see how John is just oozing? He can't contain his joy at this great news. His joy is made complete and brought to fullness at the sweet reality of the love of God made manifest in Christ Jesus. Think for a moment how wonderful and glorious right relationship with God is. That burden of guilt and shame is replaced with the tender embrace of your Father in heaven. He gazes at you with compassionate affection and holds you. He holds your hand, telling you, don't be afraid. I'm with you, and I love you. You never need to earn my favor or bid for my attention. You have my favor, and I have made you new, endure just a little longer. I'm trustworthy, and everything is going according to plan. You are my daughter, you are my son, and I love you. We're never left alone, because we're filled with himself by the Holy Spirit. And he speaks truth to us and guides us to himself how glorious a hope we have in the things to come. And we'll see more of that soon. So we see how God defines love and how he has demonstrated his love for us And if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The purposes of God's salvation for us does not end at conversion, but is intended to change how we live and what we live for, who we live for. Think logically with me for a minute, and let's look back at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if we've been born of God, which means we've been made alive through Christ, then our being has completely changed. If our nature has changed and we are now alive in Christ, our lives should reflect his. In chapter 1, John says, This is how we know we are in Christ. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did in the light. This is one of the reasons we're commanded to love one another. Our obedience is a reflection of our salvation and our love for God. So another reason we love one another is shown in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. At face value, this might seem like an odd change in topic for the Apostle John, but this verse is a continuation of everything we've been discussing. And grammar and punctuation might be the bane of many of us, but the semicolon in this verse is very helpful. It shows us this connection between seeing God and our love for one another. Since our love has its source in God's love, his love reaches its full expression. It's made complete when we love fellow Christians. So the God whom no one has ever seen is seen in those who love because God lives in them. Just, just think about that for a second and the implication it has in our lives. When we seek God's help to live out all that is written in 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter of love, or we take on the humility of Christ, Paul talks about in Philippians 2, considering others more significant than ourselves and looking to others' interests as well as our own, the God whom no one has ever seen becomes visible because of Christ in us. Can you believe that? Like, Does that change how you think about loving others? Do you, do you understand what that means and, and the effect that it has? Like the, this means that the most mundane act of love is now powerful enough to reveal the creator of the universe, our Father in heaven, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. That's pretty incredible. Your kind-heartedness, whether it's shoveling snow, visiting someone in the hospital or homebound, praying for someone when only God is listening cooking one more meal for your family, doing the laundry for the third time that day, being there for a brother or sister in need, reveals Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. That brings a big smile to my face, thinking about how the simplicity, the simple things of the ordinary of life have eternal implications, and it it brings gladness and excitement to my heart, and I hope it does to yours as well. What is often so easy to see as dull and mundane can be transformed into moments of great love, which increases our joy in God. But someone may ask, well, I see those who don't know God loving others consistently. Isn't that love? Yes. These are acts of love. As someone cares for for another, every person is made in the image of God, and even though we are distorted, sin-sick creatures in a broken world, God's common grace abounds for now. But the distinction here lies in the purposes and accomplishments of these acts of love. While the acts of love by the non-believer do reveal an aspect of God because they are image-bearers, those acts of love do not reach their completion because their love is not founded in God, but something else in this world. Remember back to the definition of sin. It's any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So while the act is a demonstration of love, and it may even be motivated with a good attitude The nature is still corrupt. So even those acts of love where someone literally lays down their life for another, whether it's in combat or a parent for the safety of their child, these were affected by the corrupted nature. Let me say that again. God is love, which means love's ultimate aim is to reveal God for love to have its full expression and reveal God the person must be born of God this means that they're made new and their their nature is redeemed. they are a new person. The person who has not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior still remains in sin, so any act of love is corrupted if even uh, at the very least by its nature so let's uh, let's let's look at verses thirteen through sixteen and see more deeply the reliance and confidence we are to have in God's love. It says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. The same author of this letter is the, is the author who wrote the Gospel of John. And we remember by reading the Gospels and at the start of this letter that John walked with Jesus and saw and touched and heard all that he testifies to us. In chapter 14 of John's Gospel, we read Jesus' promise to ask the Father to give us the Holy Spirit and we're told that we will know the Holy Spirit for he will dwell in us. The Holy Spirit reminds us of the truth and is our seal, our guarantee, as the Apostle Paul uh, writes in 1 Corinthians 1. And So this is how we know we are saved and alive in Christ. The Holy Spirit reminds us of the truth of Christ, securing our salvation by grace through faith in him. Many of us are familiar with, uh, with John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There's a lot of overlap between that passage and where we are today and how we know we have confidence we are in Christ, that we are redeemed. So how, how can we have that? Well, the fruit bearing as a branch is not a test. Bearing fruit is not some demonstration of a level of productivity to keep us safe from destruction. Rather, fruit bearing is a byproduct of abiding in God. Don't get this confused. We, we must first love God and abide in his love. And that is oneness with God and fellowship with him. And in keeping Jesus' words, obeying his commands, we demonstrate our love for him. In order to love others and glorify God, we must love him first. The Holy Spirit causes this work in us. So remember, the Father sent the Son into the world that we might live through him. Jesus accomplished his mission in in living a perfect sinless life, died on the cross for our transgressions, and rose again from the grave, defeating death. He has secured the victory. He has secured our eternal hope. He commands life. We don't earn salvation, but rather Christ paid the cost and gives salvation freely as a gift to those who would believe and place their trust in him. The apostles testify to this, and the Holy Spirit testifies to this. This is a great encouragement and reminder to us because how often do we let guilt and shame inappropriately remain in our hearts? Our hearts can be quick to condemn, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who obey his commands live in God, and he in them, and this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So don't fall into the trap of legalism. We do not and cannot perfectly obey God's commands in this life Does this disqualify us from fellowship with God? Praise be to God, it does not. John tells us in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. I like the way the NIV renders that, that verse. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Our obedience is not and will not be perfected in this life, and our obeying or disobeying does not earn God's love for us. We love because he first loved us. And we love because he continues to love us. We love one another because he has loved us, and we show his love by our obedience. So no matter what's happening in our lives, we can trust that God is working it together for good and that his love will sustain us. His grace and his mercy always outpace our shortcomings. So let's finish this passage and conclude with some final considerations. Picking up at the end of uh, verse 16. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the believer's correct response to who God is and how he has loved us. We are called to take hold of the love God gives and to know it by experience and to believe it. This is what fellowship with God is all about, to know the Lord. And to know the Lord is to know the love of God, to have experienced it and to believe it. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The Christian who has this kind of relationship with God will be immersed in God's love, and it will flow in all that they do. It becomes their place of abiding. It looks different from day to day as we are still broken, but it is our dwelling place. In verse 17, the word perf- the, for the word perfected, John writes in the Greek in a way that speaks of love being perfectly perfected or completely complete. So as we abide in God, the love of Christ in us becomes more perfectly perfected and more completely complete. We are made more like him from one degree to another. That is what the process of maturity as a Christian looks like. This is what being conformed to the image of Christ looks like. We should be able to look back over the years and see love being perfected more and more in our lives. Think about how like a stock market climbs over time. It's not straight, there's some dips, but over overall, it moves on the up and up. And here John brings about this wonderful realization of the confidence we can have today and every day in the power love has over fear. There is confidence we, we have now in the love god love of God and at the day of judgment. Consider the steps of of what we've been reading and the implications here in our life. There are five of them. Because of who God is, and to accomplish his divine purposes, he sent his only son into the world to die for our sins. In Jesus' death and resurrection, God shows us his love and offers us life because we are dead in our sins. When we believe that Jesus is the son of God and trust in his work on the cross, we are saved and God lives in us and we live in God. From that moment on, this person is a new creation with a new nature and a new heart, a heart that loves God and believes that God's ways are best. Fifth, with this perfectly perfect love from God and a love for God that is being perfectly perfected, we have confidence today, even when we are afraid. Part of the human experience includes fear. For Jesus to sympathize with us perfectly, he needed to experience fear. He's experienced it more than any of us ever could. As he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he swept blood. As he was extremely distraught, knowing he was about to take on the full wrath of God for our sins, but he abided in the Father's love, right then and there, trusting that all things work together for good for those who love God, and he obeyed God's love and conquered that fear. That is why we can rejoice in our sufferings, Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We too should rely on God's love each and every day. Obedience to God is more important than death because God's love is more important than life. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So we can have confidence in God's love today, but we'll also have it in the day of judgment. In that day, the completeness of God's love, the completeness of love's work will be demonstrated. As much as we can realize it here and now, the magnitude of God's love, we will know it much more in the day of judgment. You may know you're a sinner now, you will see it as it is in comparison to the holiness of God in that day. You may know you're no, meritori- no more meritorious than, than the unsaved. But you will know it more fully in that day. You may know the reality of hell now, but you will really be made aware of it that day. And you may understand how sweet and powerful the salvation of Christ is today, but oh, how much more you will know it in that day. What a testament to the work of God's love in us that in that day, we will be able to stand boldly and confidently because of the righteousness of Christ given to us, purchased by his precious blood. Praise be to God, because it is only he who could ever do this work in our lives, and it is all for his glory. But it's also important to state that this is no small thing. It's a hard thing for us at times. Sometimes our confidence can waver. But we must remember God's promises. Because Paul writes to the Colossians, let the word of God dwell richly in you. In those moments, the word comes to your mind. You remember the promises. Remember that there is a well of grace for all our imperfections and deficiencies that never runs dry. This is how sweet the love of God is. And may we boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. And for his, for his sake, then may we be content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when we are weak, then we are strong in the strength of Christ. So practically, how do we love one another with that sacrificial and brotherly love we see in our elder brother, Christ? I always find it tempting to try to overcomplicate as if I need to come up with something new or an exciting way, but I was reminded of just the simplicity of Jesus's and the early church's ministries. Love isn't complicated. It's not burdensome. It is a joy and a privilege. God has been building and expanding his kingdom long before our time, and there are some really simple but impactful ways to love one another that have stood the test of time. Earlier in the epistle, John gives us some examples of how we can love one another, as well as some tests to inspect our hearts. So, how can we practically love one another? Well, look around you. What are the needs of those around you? John writes uh, in chapter 3 But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word, or in talk but in deed and in truth. It's hard to believe that more than two years ago our family began attending here at Seacoast. But one of the reasons it was so clear we wanted to become members was because of how well we have been loved by you all. From meal trains to moving parties, participating in family worship, praying on the spot, vulnerability in the harder things of life, how you have loved our boys, thoughtful, handwritten notes, slack messages, meals together, and so much more. I commend you on your commitment to strive to love one another well, Continue in these things. It can be easy to give out of the overflow of the abundance you already have, whether it's time or resources. There may be seasons where you have less or you're just trying to make ends meet. You might be thinking, how can I possibly give to anyone else in this time? I would say, pray. Just pray. Ask how God is inviting you to participate. Because prayer opens the heart to God, and that's a heart that abides in God's love. You may have nothing tangibly to give, and that is okay. But God is concerned about the heart. So don't be so quick to assume. I can think back on times where we were, our family was in this position, and, and in praying, God gives a gift simply to be able to give it to somebody else, to be able to participate in that way. And so, pray. This is love that reflects the image of the invisible God to those around us. And along a similar vein, another way we can love one another is by committing ourselves to praying for one another. Consider the love involved by committing to lift up your brother or sister fervently in prayer. You're thinking of them and their needs. You're having the same love and mind as Christ as you put on humility and consider the needs of others. You are spending and investing the time God has given you on another person, lifting them up to God for his help. These are eternal investments. You're sh- you are shining brightly as a son or daughter of the Most High, but relying upon him to complete these things. Your life is pointing to his love and you are glorifying Jesus. And one last example that I think is critical. We can love one another by intentionally discipling each other. Aspects of discipleship can happen throughout moments of every day, but there's something special about the intentional and dedicated efforts by those who pursue discipling others and those seeking to be discipled. In some ways, this can feel a bit awkward. I don't know, what might they think of me? Are they even interested? I bet someone else is already investing in them. I don't think I have anything to offer them. But as we read today, don't don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of any potential awkwardness because of the love of Christ. Remember how he has loved you, how he has sought you. Saints more mature in the faith or those with greater experience, pray to the Lord that he would show you someone to come alongside and then expectantly seek the answer to that prayer. He will answer it. It may not look like discipleship with a formal study. Maybe it does. But what about just walking together in the ordinary of life and discussing what's happening or how God has helped you in a similar way? And younger saints, seek the wisdom and relationship of those older saints around you. They have much to offer and a wealth of experience to share. Pursue them. Ask them out for a coffee. An old mentor of mine wisely told me... Show your mentors and your disciples appreciation by buying them a cup of coffee or taking them out for lunch. You have much to offer them, as the fire in your bones of the youth can be a great encouragement to the older. And they have much to offer you with wisdom and temperance that comes with years of abiding and walking with the Lord. We need each other. But like any human relationship, we are unfortunately going to hurt one another, and oftentimes, it's not on purpose. But whether it's a flippant word or an unmet expectation or possibly something more significant, um, it will happen. But I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis once said in the, uh, in the book, The Four Loves. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So it is better to love and risk being hurt or disappointed Obedience to God is more important than being hurt because God's love is better than life itself. Obedience to God is more important than being hurt because God's love is better than life itself. In this, the hope of the gospel is shared and glory is given to God. So as we close, let us remember the awesome love of God, the completeness it accomplishes within us. And thereby, let us love him, love one another, and make disciples. Let's pray. How great and awesome your love is, O God. We do not deserve it. We don't understand it the way that we should or the way that we want to. But we desire to know you more, God. You have revealed yourself in your word. You have given us your Holy Spirit. You have redeemed us. Help us to seek you. You tell us that you will be found. Help us to knock on the door of your word, to open it up, to swim in the Bible, to drink you in, to meditate on the word, to reflect Time and again, and to preach the gospel to ourselves all the day long, remembering how you have loved us, how you have been faithful. And as we remember these things, as we steep ourselves in these things, and we rejoice in the God of our salvation, may that love overflow to those around us. May our lives be a reflection. May we be that city on a hill May we not hide it under a bushel, but help us to shout it from the rooftops. Because you have loved us. You have given your life for us. And I pray, Father, that we would not hold these things to ourselves, but help us to seek out those who are lost. Send more harvesters into the field. Prepare our hearts as we look to celebrate Easter. And help us to consider the gospel once again as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pray this in your name. Amen.
0: At this time we'll be celebrating communion. If you haven't already picked up one of the symbols of communion, I encourage you to do so, or maybe Eric can deliver one to you, but they're on the table in the back. And as we think ahead to Palm Sunday, as we think ahead to Good Friday, as we think ahead to Easter, what better way to embrace that most significant of Christian holidays, than to celebrate communion. Now, one of the ordinances of the Bible, one of the oldest is communion, another one is baptism. But the ordinance of communion uh, begins with Jesus holding a final or a last Passover supper with his apostles And that whole journey from that dinner to what follows is intermingled with the love of God and the love of Christ, as James just talked about. So Jesus knows what is to come as he's having that Last Supper. The disciples did not know, but we today know because we have the scriptures that were written by eyewitnesses of what was to follow. Ordinance of Communion begins with Jesus holding a last Passover meal. All four Gospels talk about and record the succession of events. You go from the the meal with the disciples and the dismissal of Judas so he can do his thing. Then we have the Lord praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizing prayers, but also talking to God about what is to follow. Then we have the arrival of Judas with the Roman guards, and they arrest Jesus, who does not fight for freedom, but agrees to go along because he has an ulterior motive, an ulterior purpose. And then there's a series of mock trials between different leaders. And ultimately, he is found guilty, and ultimately, he is crucified on a cross. He is buried, and three days later, rises from the death and sits today at the right hand of God. As an aside, he intercedes for us as he's doing that. But that whole sequence of events was done specifically for our benefit. The meal that we're about to take, therefore, should not be taken lightly. So let me set up a few guidelines Uh, First of all, this meal is open to all believers who claim Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. You do not need to be a member of this church, but you do have to have that right relationship with God. That right relationship not only includes acceptance of Christ's message, but also the wonderful ordinance of, of baptism as well. But if that is not you, you're sitting here and you haven't come to grips with the reality of Christ in your life, I just politely say, refrain from taking of the communion. Scripture is pretty clear about the fact that one should not take this meal lightly or inappropriately. And again, you don't need to be a member, but you do need to be a believer. Scripture says that this is also a great time to pause and reflect on your life, pause and examine yourself, pause and consider whether or not there is any of that sin in your life that may be hindering a relationship with someone else or just a secret sin within your life you need to struggle with. So I would like to pause right now before we start the meal itself and just for a few minutes with your heads bowed, reflect on your life. Reflect on times in the near past where perhaps you have not adhered to God's moral standard. So let's pause right now and do that. Amen. Paul helps us understand how to treat this meal when he wrote a letter to the church of Corinth. And so I'm going to quote from it as well. And we'll take the bread first. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So at this time I encourage you to to take the bread. And that bread is a symbol of Jesus' body and the sacrifice. But there's also a drink. And Paul also continues on. In the same way also he took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, I invite you to drink with all of it. In a moment, we'll have one last song, but let's bow our heads for a moment. Lord, we pause right now just to acknowledge your presence in our lives. Lord, we know we are living in a broken and imperfect world, but you are a perfect Lord. You made the perfect sacrifice, and we put our total faith and trust in you and you alone. Lord, that love that you shared for us paved the way for us to have that wonderful gift of eternal life, and Lord, what price tag can you put on that? And So Lord, we uh, fully acknowledge that your death was premeditated, that it was a Grand plan that you and your Father devise, by which, by a simple act of repentance, that often takes great strength, you uh, forgive us of our shortcomings and our sins, and and give us a new life. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Church, let's stand in response of today's word and um, sing one more song together. Amen.
2: How do you- Why should I? Why should I gain?
1: Deep the Father's love for us. Father, as we reflect and consider your love, may we look first, God, at our sin, our sin upon your shoulders. That you took and nailed to the cross. Lord, our sin. God, there is no greater love than the love that you have shown us through Jesus, your Son, on that cross, Father for not just our sins, but for the sins of the world, for all of those who believe, Father. And in that, God, we thank You. And I pray, Father, that for those who have not yet understood or have seen that You may open their eyes and their hearts to understand and receive the Gospel. There is no greater love but the love that you have shown us at the cross. Undeserved, undeserved grace, undeserved mercy, Father. But you willingly lay down your life for us. God, I pray that we may be a church, God, that abides in you, Father that we may abide in fellowship as well and seek a life honoring to you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for the love that you've shown us. For it it provides us, Lord, that perfect example. Christ, your Son, the cross, and resurrection. That's the love, Lord, that you have graciously shown us. And so, Father, I pray that you may make us to be more like you, Lord. Forgive us. Of our sin and show us your righteousness that will then lead us in the assurance that we can now stand in. That is your love. May our lives reflect your love, O God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Word of God says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Church, God bless you. You're dismissed. Amen.